Father, as we come to you uh, this morning, first of all, God, we know that uh, who you are, and we know that there are no other gods except you. And God, uh, um, you are mighty, and you're wonderful, and you're kind, and you're patient, and loving, and uh, we can ask you things, and you will do things for us. Your son, Jesus, told us that we don't have because we don't ask. And so this morning, God, uh, we want to ask you on behalf of our nation and our world, God, there's some things happening that uh, make us feel very bad, make us feel hopeless and helpless. But we can ask that uh, you would bring things around, Lord, uh, um, and that your people would influence others and that... uh, Jesus would be found by many, many people through these hard times. And God, um, right now I know this morning there's people that are here that their hearts are broken because of relationship things, because of illnesses, because of uh, things that have happened work-wise, and the list would go on, and even people that are dealing with death in their families and friends, issues like that. God, we can cry out to you and you hear us and you help us. You can give us peace and and comfort that can only come from you. And we know, God, that you do that because your word tells us. And many of us have experienced that. So this morning, open up our hearts and our minds to the message that Phil has prepared and that we would um, get something out of what is being said today and we would go away feeling good in our heart after worshiping together and being together here. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Danny. Go ahead and be seated. I've told you before, and I, I really mean this, math is not my language. Never has been. When I was in high school, I had to take pre-algebra and algebra and geometry, and I might as well have taken Spanish, French, and Italian. It was all very, very foreign to me, particularly geometry. The only reason I passed that class was the grace of God and the grace of Bill Dixon, my teacher. I'm pretty positive I was an early poster child for the whole idea of no child left behind. They just moved me right on through math, I think, to get rid of me more than anything. Geometry was extremely difficult for me, still is. Surprised me a little bit this week when I found myself prowling around in the realm of geometry, studying some different things out. I I shocked myself, and I eventually stumbled across a website that just the title of it made me laugh. The title, very simply, Math is Fun, made me go, Baha! (laughs) No, it's not. However, I went ahead and clicked on it, and started exploring some things that really captured my attention. In fact, they taught me quite a bit. Now, you have to know that this website, Math is Fun, is written for children or simple-minded adults like myself, and that's why I was learning a lot of different things from it. Let me show you what I saw, but first, let me tell you why I was there. I was curious about dimensions, and that's why I found myself on this website. It is titled Dimensions, the first page is. Over here on the right, we see this little box that really captured my attention, the zero, one, two, three. It has a point, a line, a square, and then a cube. So that's exactly where I was wanting to go with it. 
I jumped from the picture on the right back over to the left where we read these words. Point, line, plane, and solid. A point has no dimensions, only position. That was interesting to me. A line is one-dimensional. A plane is two-dimensional. A solid is three-dimensional. Now that's pretty simple stuff. It really is. Gets a little more complicated and certainly for me more interesting on page two. We'll start with a point. A point has no dimensions. A point really has no size at all, but we show them as dots so that we can see where they are. And the next page teaches us, now let's allow the point to move in one direction. We get a line. We need just one value to, fi to find a point on that line. So we have one dimension. A line is one dimensional. See how simple it is? Next page. Now let's allow the point to move in a different direction and we get a plane. We need two values to find a point on that plane. So we have two dimensions. Circles, triangles, squares, and more are plane shapes. Now this is where it's really amping up for me. Now we let that point move in another completely different direction and we have three dimensions. Spheres, cubes, cylinders, and more are three-dimensional or 3D. We also call them solid shapes. Now here's the part of this web page that I really appreciated and it had me from this point on. The world we live in is three-dimensional. The world we live in is three-dimensional. That's exactly what I was looking for when I went there. I had no idea that that line would show up on their page, but that's exactly what I was looking for. This whole exploration began when I was thinking about the three-dimensional aspects of God. The three-dimensional idea actually comes from Scripture. It begins with God himself. Let me show you what I'm talking about if you brought a Bible with you, and I hope you did. If you have a Bible with you, I want you to see the things we're talking about today for yourself. Don't just trust me. You open your Bibles. If you're using your phones, use your phones. Look this scripture up. If you're using an iPad, do the same thing. Look this scripture up. And every passage that we talk about today, this is good stuff. Here's where the whole idea of three dimensions first shows up. It's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The very first chapter of the first book of the Bible. Chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Back in verse 26, there's a tiny little word that has caused a lot of confusion through the years. Here it is. Then God said, let us make man in our image. That word, our, has caused a lot of confusion. There are some people that believe that our means God was speaking to the angels. When he said, let us make man in our image, he meant in the image of the angelic realm. My friends, that is heresy. That is heresy. God was not speaking to the angelic realm. The angels were not responsible for creation. God and God alone was responsible for creation. 
That's why the writer of Hebrews would tell us to be very, very careful of the worship of angels and those that choose to worship them. That is a dangerous yet easy trap to fall into. So you stay away from that type of heretical teaching. So that still leaves people wondering then, who is our? If God and God alone is responsible for creation and he says, let us make man in our image, then who is he talking to? That is God the Father speaking to God the Son and God the Spirit. That's what we know as the Trinity, the triune Godhead. Three persons in one. There is no question about it. That is a complicated idea for us to wrap our minds around. Not only is it a complicated idea, it is a complicated truth. You be very careful of anyone that will ever bring you a teaching that says the Trinity is false they are bringing you heresy as well. If anybody comes to you and offers you that idea that you cannot believe in the Trinity, you run from them. The Trinity shows up for the very first time in the first chapter of the Bible, and you will see it interspersed all the way through to the book of Revelation. The Trinity is real. Now, I am not one that's going to tell you that it's easy to wrap your mind around. In fact, it has been well said that if you try to explain the Trinity you may lose your mind. But if you try to explain it away, you will lose your soul. So we have to understand that this is the first place where it shows up, and when it does, we see three dimensions for the first time. The world that we live in is three-dimensional. God said, let us make man in our image, therefore we are three-dimensional. And that opens up the door to all kinds of interesting explorations. It opens us up to understand the depth of creation and the depth of who we are in ways that we never can until we wrap our mind around the fact that the world we live in is three-dimensional because the God who created us is three-dimensional. That's some of the truth of who God is and who we are. Now let's take the idea of us being three-dimensional and we'll just boil it down into one idea today. The idea of how we worship. Worship is done three-dimensionally. The world that we live in is three-dimensional. The way we are designed to worship is also three-dimensional. God gives us our intellect or our mind that we might know more about him. Then he gives us our emotions or our hearts that we might love him more. And then he gives us our will that we might obey him. All three of those things come together to help us worship. It is the goal, the design of every worship service that we put together to touch every one of those aspects. Think about this with me. When we open our Bibles together and we get into the time in the message where we, I start preaching or somebody starts preaching and you have your Bible laid on your lap, that is to inspire your mind, the intellect, that you might know more about God. So the purpose is teaching. When we sing in worship, the whole point of that is to inspire your emotions or your heart that you might love God more. Sometimes that comes from the words. Sometimes that comes from those that are singing. Sometimes it comes in a supernatural understanding that God gives you. 
But in the midst of singing, in the midst of music and everything else that is done in worship, it is designed that you might love the Lord more. And then there are parts of our worship service like the Lord's Supper and the offering that are designed in such a way to touch your will, to make you want to be obedient to the Lord. Think about it. Jesus said, as often as we take communion, we're to do it in remembrance of him. That is a will-centered issue. I'm going to do this in remembrance of him. God said, do it, I'm going to do it. That's the purpose and the design behind it. Three-dimensional worship. So I was studying this out this past week, though. I found a term within the realm of geometry that I didn't know existed, and maybe it isn't real. There's a lot of you that understand mathematics and geometry a lot better than I do, so feel free to tell me I am wrong. But it is the fourth dimension called the tesseract. And sometimes in our worship of God, the fourth dimension comes into play. When we make a conscious choice to share our faith and give it away to someone else. That is a fourth dimension of worship or a tesseract. Go home and look it up. Check it out. I spent too much time chasing that thing out. Which, by the way, the term tesseract shows up in the Marvel movies. And so that's part of what made me say, it can't be a real term. It appears to be a real term the fourth dimension. And it may very well be that we were designed for four-dimensional worship, to worship in such a way that our mind is inspired, our emotions are moved, and our will is convicted to the point where we want to give away what we have in Christ. Well, last week, we talked about how to be sure, how to be certain in uncertain times, and we talked about the intellect, utilizing our mind and relying on fact to help us be certain. We applied it to our relationship with God and we applied it to current events, current situations. Next week, we are going to talk about faith and the will, our choosing to obey God. But this week, I want us to focus on the heart, our emotions, that center dimension. The other two things seem to be bookends to it. So today, I want us to focus on our emotions, how we use them. Now, as we get into that, I want you to know that our emotions on their own, left on their own, cannot be trusted to guide us. Emotions left on their own cannot be trusted to guide us. Listen to how John Piper captures that idea. My feelings are not God. God is God. My feelings do not define truth. God's word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind perceives. And sometimes, many times, my feelings are out of sync with the truth. When that happens, and it happens every day in some measure, I try not to bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but rather I plead with God, purify my perceptions of your truth, and transform my feelings so that they are in sync with your truth. Emotions left on their own cannot be trusted to guide us. If they were, that guide would change almost daily, if not multiple times throughout the course of a day. Think about this with me for just a second, will you? If you wake up in the morning and you are just in a foul mood, anybody ever woken up in a foul mood? Go ahead and be transparent. Anybody ever woken up in a foul mood? I have. If you've woken up in a foul mood, it governs every decision you make throughout the course of the day. If you get out of bed and you're just in a bad mood, 
isn't going to take very long before the people around you are completely aware of it. The decisions that you make when you're in a bad mood are going to determine the outcomes. So if you are trusting that emotion to guide you, it's probably not going to end in a good place. Maybe you wake up in the morning not just in a bad mood, but you wake up angry. Anybody ever woken up angry? I've woken up angry. You may not even know why you woke up angry. You are just angry. And I'm not talking about a little bit angry. I'm talking about seven kinds of holy mad. You get out of bed that way in the morning, every decision you make, every person you come in contact with is going to know that. Your anger is going to govern everything that you do. Or try this one. If you wake up in the morning and you're anxious, anxiety is going to determine every decision you make. A lot of people today wake up anxious. They're nervous, scared. And that emotion, if it is left on its own, will guide every decision and every path chosen. So emotions on their own can't be trusted as a guide. You can even flip that nickel over and a look at it from a positive standpoint. Maybe you wake up in the morning and you are just exuberant. You don't even know why. Today's just a great day. You are as happy as you've ever been. You're as excited as you can possibly imagine. So you get out of bed and you start your day in that type of exuberance. And at the end of the day, you look back and realize that you've said yes to everybody that ever asked you to do anything. And you are now totally overcommitted because of your exuberance. Emotions left on their own cannot be trusted to be a guide. There's other ways to apply that. You can plug in any emotion and recognize that if you only follow that emotion, you're going to be in trouble. A lot of people do that even within the realm of worship, and that's a difficult thing. Listen to me on this. If you take nothing else with you, listen to me on this. If you are only trusting your emotions in your worship of God and your understanding of God, you are destined to fail in your walk with God. Because like any addiction, if you are addicted to a high and all you want is a feeling of exuberance with God, that today is a high, when tomorrow it's not, that turns into anger towards the Lord, disappointment towards God. And it can even grow into a root of bitterness. And it doesn't just apply within worship. It may be that in your walk with the Lord, you want to experience this feeling of high all the time. So you pray about something and you ask God for something very specifically and God responds and you think, wow, God is so cool. It can't get any better than this. And the next time though, when you have a need in your life and you pray about that need and you ask God for something very specifically and God does not give you what you wanted, but rather gives you what you need, all of a sudden you go from here to here in your walk with the Lord and you get upset with God and you blame God because you have allowed your emotions to control everything. Emotions tend to be based on what we want in any given moment. So they can't be trusted. Now, in fairness, I have to say this as well. If all you're doing is trusting your intellect to control your worship of God, you're going to have a pretty boring, non-risk-taking relationship with the Lord. If your heart never comes into it, but only your mind is used, you're probably never going to do anything for the Lord because you're not allowing your heart to be stirred. And if you are only trusting your will, obedience, as the guide for how you're doing in your walk with the Lord, you're going to fall short every time. 
And a lot of people look at their relationship with God, their walk with him, as nothing more than a number of boxes to be checked. I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and therefore everything is okay. Welcome to legalism. And legalism will always leave you wanting. It requires the three dimensions. When those three dimensions come together, we are not only worshiping the Lord, but we are growing in relationship with Him, and it becomes something spectacular. It becomes what God wants for us. Yet we cannot let just one aspect stand on its own, particularly emotion. If emotion cannot be trusted as a guide, then why did God give it to us? Because it's a gauge. Emotions are not a guide. They are a gauge. They help us see between our mind and our will how we're doing. Emotions help us figure out if in any particular situation, whether that is with God or whether that is in current events or whether that is relationally, do I need to lean a little bit more over here for a while so that I am soaking up truth that we talked about last week? Or do I need to get back over on this side a little bit where I am acting upon that truth? Emotions are a gauge within those bookends to help us determine what we're supposed to do or what we need to do. That's why emotions are not a guide, but they are a gauge to help us determine where we need to be. Now, let me illustrate for you scripturally what that looks like. If you're in Genesis chapter 1, just turn over a couple chapters to chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. By the way, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 is one of the most important verses in all of the Old Testament. It references the nation of Israel and the Jewish people very directly. It speaks of the dispensation when God's blessing rested on them and when it will rest there again. If you're a note taker in your Bible, note take, or note take, underline that verse and write in the margin of your Bible one of the most significant verses in all of the Old Testament. Moving on, verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now you have to follow everything that happens in this passage. I know you're aware of it, but let me just hit some of the high points. Abram and his wife Sarah have wrestled with infertility. Abram's 75 years old. They have no children. During a time where children were the greatest blessing there was from God, they were also the assurance of passing on the family. 
So it was necessary, at least perceived as necessary, for people to have children. So you can imagine that Abram and Sarah wanted kids more than anything in all the world, but they had no children. So God comes to Abram as he is not living in the promised land, he's living outside of it, and he says, I want you to pick up and move into this land that I'm going to give your descendants. And Abram now has to be thinking, I don't have any descendants. But God says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And because Jehovah God is speaking to him, he goes from an emotional realm way down here in the the basement where they've kind of been kicked in the dirt because it doesn't seem like they're ever going to have kids to hearing a promise from Jehovah God that puts them up here. See how that works? All right. And the Bible tells us that Abraham grabbed his wife, grabbed a few family members, everything they had, and they headed out, going to obey the Lord. Now fast forward a number of years with me to chapter 15. Verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what would you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So here we have Abram, way back in chapter 12, where he's down here in the basement emotionally, and then God brings him way up here into the clouds. He goes from a two to a ten. But now, a number of years later, he has fallen from the realm of a ten back down to a two or three because he and Sarah still don't have any children. And when God comes to speak to him again, emotionally, he speaks back to God and says, how's that going to be? I have no kids. You promised us that, and we have no children. In fact, the heir of my household is going to be my servant. That's the best I have to hope for because I was up here believing you, but now I'm down here and I'm really struggling in my faith to believe that you're going to bring this about. And God says, once you step outside and number the stars if you can, that's how many your descendants will be. This promise isn't over. Well, you need to look at Abram's response. Verse 6, here it is. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And Abram believed again. So he went from here back up to here. Okay, God. Okay, God. Waiting to see it. That's why emotions are a gauge, not a guide. But they helped him see that he needed to lean back over to the truth of what God said and hang on to it. So he did. I love how the Apostle Paul tells this story in the New Testament. Go with me to Romans chapter 4, will you? If you were just reading this account in the New Testament... You would read it and you would think, yeah, that's exactly how it happened. But when you lay the Old Testament account over the top of it, you see a few extra details. And that's what happens here. Take a look at how Paul tells Abram's story. This is Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. 
As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, when you read that in Romans chapter 4, you think there was never a moment, not one moment, where Abraham ever questioned. Yet when you read the account back in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, you see the questioning as he goes from here to here. Well, here's how Paul captured that crazy, curious statement. Verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope. That one little sentence captures all of the emotion of what Abram was dealing with. In hope, he believed against all hope, which means he believed against all odds. He believed against all hope. For him, physically, all hope was lost. There is no way for us to do this. There is no way for God to bring this about, not in human terms, not within my realm. That's impossible. So Abraham had to do something remarkable. He had to believe in hope against all hope. See how that works? You ever found yourself in a place in life where it appeared that all hope was gone? That there was no victory coming? So you prayed. And you prayed in faith with hope that God would bring something about. That places you squarely in what we can refer to as the God zone. When you are believing in hope against all hope, you are in the God zone. This is where God and God alone has to respond. Because left to my own devices, my own power, my own abilities, it's gone. Emotionally, I'm way down here. That's that place where hope beyond all hope kicks in. Yesterday, there were a group of people that gathered in Washington, D.C. in hope against all hope. They look at the things that are happening in our society, the politicization of everything that is going on, the pandemic that is touching every aspect of life, the financial ruin that a lot of people have experienced, the relational struggles that people have wrestled with and some people have surrendered to. Well, a group of Christians gathered in Washington, D.C. yesterday in hope against all hope to ask God to intervene. They went to Washington, D.C. to say, Lord, you show yourself to be who you are, and God will respond. There are a number of people that do that exact same thing. When they look at society and they think it can't get any worse than this, in hope against all hope, they ask God to show himself to be God. In hope against all hope, we are in the God zone where we're saying, Lord, we trust you. You take this and run. You take this and run, because we don't have anything else. We just want to be faithful. 
And as the emotions get measured in our life, they become a gauge for whether we have really placed ourselves in a spot where we will trust the Lord or whether we have gotten to a place where we are obeying God and doing what he told us to do. They swing between those two bookends. Our emotions do. And God designed them to be that way, to be a gauge, to show us where we need to be, especially in moments where it appears that we need hope against all hope. So God can show himself to be God. And the Lord does. So that leaves this question then. Well, how in the world do I use these emotions? How am I supposed to work through them? I am so glad you asked. Because God gives us four gifts to help with it. And if we will use them, each one of them, then we can get back to a place where our emotions are really what they're supposed to be and they are intact and they are simply used as a gauge to show us how we're doing with truth, our intellect, and how we're doing with obeying our will. So the first gift from God is actually his son. Let me take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Listen to what the Bible says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When a person gives their life to Jesus Christ, when you trust yourself to him, when you seal that decision in baptism and you are walking with God, a transformation happens. A transformation takes place in your life. And this old way of seeing things disappears and a new way of seeing things comes on the scene. In the old way, the physical way of seeing things, emotions determine everything. We're just going to do what we want, and we're going to be selfishly motivated in every decision we make. But when we are transformed in Christ, it's no longer what we want, but what God wants, what Jesus wants for us. So I'm going to operate that way. I'm going to act according to those things. Here's what that looks like in John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. When you are born again, Something happens, a transformation happens in your life and in your emotions where you can surrender those to God and stop living by them. So in his son, he gives us the first step that leads to a beautiful end. Listen to this from Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, "'His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness.'" through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You remember back in 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our own image, and we were. We were made in the image of God. Well, we were made in the image of God with a promise that we would become joint heirs with Jesus to all that God has to offer. So we get to be partakers in the divine nature. No longer driven by these emotions, we are partakers in the divine nature. What a great promise. What a great promise. And God gives us a second gift to help with that, the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus promised that after he ascended into heaven, the Spirit would come, the wonderful Counselor would come, and would take up residence inside every believer so that we would have this gift from God that would transform our lives. In fact, in the book of Romans, Paul would tell us that because of the Spirit living within us, we don't have to conform to the patterns of the world anymore, but we can be transformed by the renewing of our hearts and our minds to become a new person. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 show us what happens in a person's life when we become a Christian. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those are the fruits of a Spirit-filled life. I would say, and have often taught, that this is uh, what I would call an instead passage. Here's what I mean by that. It's best just to take a look at it. You can read Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23 with instead in it, and you'll see what I mean. Love instead of hate, joy instead of despair, peace instead of turmoil, patience instead of anger, kindness instead of harshness, goodness instead of badness, faithfulness instead of impetuousness, gentleness instead of abruptness, and self-control instead of passion control. It's an instead passion or passage. Our emotions get replaced. And how cool is that? That is an amazing gift from God that comes through the Spirit. But then God gives us this third gift to help us control our, our emotions. He gives us his church. He gives us his people. So he gives us his son, he gives us his spirit, and he gives us his people. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, reads like this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from which the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God gives us the church. The church is this place where we get recalibrated, and God intended it to be that way. Every person having a place within the church, within the body of Christ, to use the unique giftedness that God has given to help recalibrate people. Have you ever left church on Sunday morning and said to yourself, man, I just feel better after I've been in church? That's the recalibration of your compass. And it happens through God's people. It isn't necessarily through the preacher. It isn't even necessarily through worship. But both of those things can be used. Sometimes it's through coffee. 
the people that you talked to when you were standing there helped recalibrate you. Sometimes it's through those that you get to watch and worship. It recalibrates you. Maybe it's through Sunday school. Maybe it's through fellowship. Whatever the case might be, you come to church and you get recalibrated. That's why the writer of Hebrews would say, and let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. The closer we get to the return of Jesus Christ, the worse our culture is going to become. The closer we get to the return of Jesus Christ, the more people are going to turn away, according to the Bible, from sound doctrine to teachers that will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And they will follow those teachers. We need the church. The church is what calibrates us. The church is what holds us together as a body. The church is the place where we receive encouragement. And as we turn our eyes towards heaven, we receive it more and more every time we come together. So God gives his son and he gives his spirit and he gives his church to hold us together and to help us not measure every decision in life by emotion. And then God gives us his word. This is found in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. God gave us his word. And sometimes when our emotions are completely out of whack, the very thing that we need to do is get back into the Word and let it dwell within us in such a way that the words of God come out of our mouths before our own words, where we are standing on the truth of God's Word and not trying to distort that in any capacity, where if God's Word says it, you believe it and you do it. It's that simple. There are a lot of debates that are raging in our world today that have become emotional debates that are completely silly because God's word speaks to them and when God says it, he means it. So if God's word says it, that settles it. That just settles it. So if God said it and God means it, I believe it, what's the point of debate and argument and discussion? God's word says it, that's it. Somebody say amen. Here, I'll give you another chance. God's word says it, I believe it, that settles it. Say amen. amen. When that's the case, emotions aren't necessary. We don't need them because we have truth inspired through our intellect. And I will stand on the truth of God's word every time, every time. And there is no point in discussion about it. There is no point in argument. If God's word says this is the way it's supposed to happen, then this is the way it's supposed to happen. Wow, what freedom. What freedom. All I have to do is trust God's word. So God gives us four things. And all of them help us use our emotions as a gauge and keeps us from using them as a guide. He gives us his son. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his people. And he gives us his word. Use them. Use them. I'll illustrate that for you just one other way as the worship team comes. I was scrolling through Facebook this past week and 
saw a post from a friend of mine that doesn't live in Libby, doesn't live in Montana, doesn't live even close to Montana. I'm guessing she will never hear this message, and so I can use the illustration, and, and I will. I was a little bit disappointed because I know that she is a strong believer in Jesus. But she needed an oil change. She said it had gotten to the point of an emergency. Lights were flashing inside her car. She needed an oil change. She pulled into a place to get that done because it was a crisis. After they changed her oil, she took to Facebook to tear that place up. I mean, just tear that place up. And her reason behind that was because the people that were working there, changing oil and taking her money, were not wearing a mask. That was her reason. So she used the current climate to become a pulpit for something that she was very upset about. And when she tore them up on Facebook, she just kept on going. She took a picture of the outside of the building and she posted that on Facebook. And she said, these people don't care about anyone else. I will never go back to this place. And no one else should ever go back to this place. What a horrible thing for a Christian to do. Every bit of me wanted to respond to her on Facebook. But let me tell you this. I do not believe in Facebook arguments. I don't think they're productive. I don't think they help anybody. And so I don't get involved in them. I just don't do it. But every bit of me wanted to send her just a simple little quote from Philippians chapter 4 that says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. So what happened to her testimony and her emotional tirade to every person that maybe is watching her page and she isn't, or they aren't Christians, but they know that she is, where was her gentleness? What happened to her testimony in the midst of that? And we all are guilty of it at some levels. And what we have to remember when our emotions are driving us is that we're not necessarily calibrated where we need to be. So sometimes all we need is the truth of God's word. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. It's like God pulling the reins on us and holding us back until our emotions are right. And then we can respond. It is a continual wrestling match that all of us need to be involved in, remembering that emotions are not a guide. They are a gauge. They are God-given. They are one of the dimensions of worship. Use them correctly, particularly in a world today that is in such turmoil. If you can get your emotions in check, you can find truth.